The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Hi everyone, it's time to get going. Welcome to City Bible Forum today. My name is Craig Josling. Uh, the topic we're looking at today is Freudian myths, sexual freedom and Christian repression. That's a mouthful if I ever, ever saw one. This is the third talk in a series, Love, God and Other Small Things. So we don't mind taking on the difficult topics here at City Bible Forum. Our motto is life in the city and uh, sex is one of those real life issues that we're going to be addressing from the Bible. Our speaker today is Ian Powell. I haven't got a clue what he's going to say on this topic, but I'm looking forward very much to hearing what he has to say. If you'd like to ask questions, uh, the best way to do that is via the little slip of paper that you'll find inside your program. Ask a question or make a comment and we'll collect those up after Ian's talk. Ian's talk will go for about 20 to 25 minutes. Then we'll have questions with a few announcements and then it's back to work. If you'd like to open up your program, I'm going to read one of the Bible passages that Ian will be referring to today. It's from the Old Testament part of the Bible, written by Solomon, one of the great kings of Israel, Song of Songs, chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter! Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands, your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two forms, like twin forms of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabin. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of, of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. Well, there it is. There's a bit of a clown in the office. Have a, oh, there we go. But Ziggy never had to worry about turning these things on. Thank you. Sigmund Freud, 1856 to 1939. I think he died in London just after the Second World War began. Now, he is one of the giants of Western culture, founder of modern psychiatry, psychoanalysis, and even his critics admit there's a sense in which we're all Freudians now. Um, Auden, a British poet, said that Sigmund Freud is not so much a person, but a whole climate of opinion. And there's a whole way that we think about life. If you meet someone at work or a family member or an in-law or something who's weird... 
uh, or, or nasty, you'll just instinctively think something probably happened to them as a child. Now, that's a post-Freudian observation. It's probably true to say that were it not for Sigmund, we would not think that way. So even people who critique Sigmund, and like any great human thinker, worthy of critique, uh, but at the same time, he is one of the great geniuses. And as, as we sort of worked out the title some months ago, um, and as I've been studying a little bit of Freud, I don't want to pretend I'm an expert, I've realised that what I think of as Freudian myths are really not Sigmund Freud at all. Uh, the idea that um, any time you say no to a sexual desire, any time you sort of um, refuse to give in to some sexual passion, this can cause some sort of damage to you. Uh, any sort of sexual discipline can be destructive and you should just go with the passion. That's, that's not Freud at all. That's much more the, the, the work of uh, Kinsey, who's an American... Well, it was weird. He actually became famous for an area of research that he wasn't trained in. And a, and a woman called Margaret Mead, who became famous for her book um, Coming of Age in the Solomons. Now, both those um, scholars have had massive influence on American and Anglo-American culture, even if people have never heard of them. Um, in fact, I was talking with a lawyer the other week in the city who was, who was coming out with classic Keynesian nonsense. But he didn't think of it as nonsense because he just knows it as scientific the problem is that both Margaret Mead and Kinsey have been utterly and rightly disgraced by colleagues, not by religious people, who just said that their method is, is shameful. And you can ask a question at that if you wish. Uh, but the notion that sex should be cut free from the constraints and the restrictions of morality, of do's and don'ts, that if you, if you have those two things blended together, do's and don'ts and sex, you'll get human dysfunction, probably sexual perversion, that sort of thing, that's not Freud at all. Freud himself was quite sexually restrained. What Freud, I think, was really... I mean, he did have some weird ideas and, and had some, in my opinion, not that it would worry him that some little nobody from Australia thinks his ideas are weird. Um, but what I think is distinctive... Actually, we can get rid of those pictures. <laughs> Thank you. Jack can only last for so long. Um, but... Um, what is distinctive about Freud, I think, and to which I think he's probably right, is we need to learn to talk about sex. Uh, one of his concerns was that there's this whole powerful part of being human, massively powerful in all of our lives, and yet we don't talk about it. And frankly, if you're a Christian, um, you can be the most coy, and yet we oughtn't to be, if you understand it's made by God. So this is the question we're looking at. Does Christianity screw up human sexuality? Now, more than um, Freud, Bertrand Russell probably is the man who sort of articulates this very clearly, where he says, the worst feature of the Christian religion is its attitude towards sex, which is morbid and unnatural. So that's the question we're going to look at. Is this true of Christianity that has a morbid, a deathly, and an unnatural view of sex? Now... As if you know anything about the life of Bertrand Russell and his relationship, his ongoing relationships with some of his female young students and the fairly negative influence that had on one or two, one that led to one girl suiciding, may well want to play the man, but I'll avoid that. I'll just cast nasturtions in a general way. Uh, because really what a person says is always worth putting in its context. So this is a light-hearted comment. Boris Becker made an interesting... He's the tennis player, youngest guy to win Wimbledon. Um, boom, boom, Becker. Um, it makes some interesting comments. He made some interesting comments about monogamy. 
how it can't work and blah, blah, blah. And of course, the comments are nowhere near as convincing when you realise that they were made in the interview when he was revealing the fact that yes, he had had sex with a waitress in the broom cupboard while his wife was giving birth. Now, a man who attacks monogamy on that background, we're not quite so likely to take it as the results of fine empirical science. So let's have a look at this Bertrand Russell thing. Is Christianity's view of sex morbid and unnatural? Now, you've got a, a relationship with God and a faith system that's been going for 2,000 years and hundreds of different cultures and thousands of books written. You're going to find in any group of that length of time and that amount of uh, writing some wacky thing said about any topic. And you can find some wacky collections of quotes from Christians. Uh, mind you, you can find wacky quotes from anybody. But the thing in the end we've got to work out is not so much can you find wacky Christians who ha- are hung up, probably would have been hung up if they were Christian or not, but is the thing in itself sick and liable to be toxic? So to use a, uh, an example that I heard John Dixon use once, um, or similar, I, I, I grew up with a, a family, quite, our houses were quite close together, um, and there was a little girl in the house next door learning to play the violin. And for many years, I hated the violin. I knew the violin. It was a monstrous instrument. It was, it was horrid, and she was very devoted in practice. And yet, just this year, I paid quite a lot of money to go with a friend to, Sydney, to the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, and they were playing Brahms Violin Concerto, and they had a lady from somewhere in Russia playing, and it was gorgeous. So I've learned to distinguish between certain forms of violin and other forms of violin. In fact, frankly, if you've heard that poor little girl who's practicing, who'd probably now be, you know, a grandmother somewhere, um, she may be magnificent. So at some stage, you know, you need to go back, as it were, to the original score and see if the score is the problem or the various uh, attempts to play it. So the question we're going to ask is, is the biblical view of sexuality um, sick, perverted, toxic? Does the Bible view sex as fundamentally a good thing or a bad thing? Is there almost an equal sign between sin and sex in the Bible? Is it true, as I've read, oh, so many times in the last few weeks on various blog sites and websites, uh, that the, the Bible's view of sex is it's just for procreation? And a number of the websites said, it's Christianity's sick view, Eastern religions are fine. You look up the Hare Krishna website. It will say in black and white, the official Hare Krishna website in Australia will say, do not have sex apart from procreation. And yet we get slammed with that. Um, well, is it? Or is it about pleasure? Well, let's have a look. You've got there a series of verses, and those of you who hang around the Bible a bit will think, oh, yes, these old ones. We, know, we knew these verses would be coming. Um, that's okay. Here we go. Genesis 1. Let's start at the very beginning. Genesis 1. Uh, On day 6, the day that the animals were made, God makes human beings. Verse 27. Let's hear what God has got to say. He introduces humankind. Fascinating. He says three things, maybe four, about us. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Two things it says about us to start with. We're made by God. It says it twice. It's important to realize that. Right? We don't make ourselves. We're not accidents. We are the result of an intelligent, creative process. We're a work of art. Secondly, there's something about being human that is something like God. Now, the Bible's going to spend a lot of time saying, God is not like you. But there's something about humans in the world that is like God in the universe. Uh, and let, God will explain that. Now, um, he moves on. There's two things. So here's, the, here's the extraordinary third thing. It would never cross my mind. I think it would cross most of our minds. To introduce human beings made by God, something God-like about humans. Third thing, male and female, he created them. 
Seriously? The third thing you want to say about human beings is that we're male and female? I mean, is it really that essential? Is it really that central to human life? But God has spoken on day six about making all the other animals. He doesn't say male and female there. I don't think he doesn't make a big deal of that. Right? They are male and female. And yet, what God is saying is, you want to understand this creature being human, it's made by God, it's like God in some way, it's male and female. And now we know, through science, modern science, that this, this strange emphasis on the sexuality of humans, it's, it's at a cellular level. You know, back in the 70s and the 80s at the various points in the feminist revolution, which was, which was like all revolutions, really good and really unhelpful in some areas, in my opinion... Uh, there was a tendency to say, look, the difference between men and women is just their genitals. Everything else is pretty much the same. And we all had to pretend we agreed with that, otherwise you sounded like an idiot. Um, but now we know. You can take any cell out of my body and tell it's male, that it comes from a male body, except hair and fingernails, which are pretty much the same stuff, uh, or red blood cells. Any other cell, you can tell it comes from a male body. Or if you're a woman, we can tell it's so that the, sexu- the sexual being of humans is at the cellular level. It's absolutely essential. And this is what Genesis 1 wants to say, that this, this being sex- a sexual being, it's God's idea and it's central to the experience of being human. Moving right along quickly, Genesis 2, where God retells the story of the creation from a different facet to draw, up, to draw really important things about the business of being human, which is a complicated business, as you know. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. This, is, this clangs in your ear if you've read from chapter 1. Because in chapter 1, it's good, it's good, it's good. When he finally makes man and woman, and he's, it's very good. Retells a story. There's something not goodness about a human being alone. So God decides to make a helper suitable for him. The Lord God caused the man to fall into... The, we skip a few verses, not that I don't like them, but just for want of time. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping... He took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place of flesh. The significance of this is the other possible helpers for man have been made from the dirt. Right? This is God making, them, making a helper from, you know, made of the same stuff. Right? Absolute, essentially the same stuff. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He'd taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. Just like a picture of God is kind of like a father bringing the bride to the groom. He brings and entrusts her to him. And then we have the first bit of poetry in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 1 is like rhythmic prose. It's got a certain rhythm to it, but it's not poetry. This is the first bit of poetry, and it's a bit of love poetry. And it's excited. Um, This is now, and really the sense is this at last. There's a sense of relief and joy. This at last, this now, is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman. She was taken out of woman. Then here's the verse that we've mentioned in the last two weeks and we'll mention again next week when we look at what Jesus says about divorce and remarriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. That is so unpatriarchal. It's so, we miss that. It is so contrary to everything in, in the universe around it then. This, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and he's joined to his wife. They become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Uh, we have little time. But to note here that the, the, the man and the woman are deeply similar, made of the same stuff, and yet wonderfully and perfectly different. Now you see this in, in the construction of the genitals. 
the, the perfection of the design is extraordinary. Even the angles, etc., at which things work. It's very cleverly designed. The man and the woman are designed for each other. We know that. And there's a oneness and there's a joy and there's an unashamedness and there's this, uh, this monogamous relationship that Jesus will speak about. So, to bring together Genesis 1 and 2, um, as we said here last year, but you know, in case you've forgotten, um, if you can't in your mind imagine Adam and Eve long before they sinned, lost in sexual ecstasy and excitement and orgasm, and then afterwards lying back, as they do in the movies, smoking presumably with an oboe playing, something sort of sensual, that's the way it works in the old movies. If you can't picture Adam and Eve doing that long before sin entered the world, you need to read the Bible more. If there's anything satanic running around in our culture, the idea which is just prolific in our culture, that somehow or other the original sin that the Bible talks about is about sex, that is a filthy, vile, disgusting, satanic lie. It is not about sex. In fact, if Adam and Eve don't have sex, they're sinning. Because in Genesis 1, the very first command God gives them is to go forth and be fruitful and multiply. Now, they may not have been able to talk about fallopian tubes and eggs floating down and all that sort of stuff. But let's not... I mean, you know, people back then understood if you don't have sex, you don't have kids. The command to be fruitful is a command to have sex, as if they needed it. But we do need to abolish from our head the slightest hint that sin in the garden has anything to do with sexual temptation. There was no sexual temptation. They were designed to rejoice in each other's physicality. And just in case we think, oh, well, that was then. Now that sin has entered the world, there are certain pleasures you just can't play with anymore. It's not like that. Well, that's why God has put the Song of Solomon geographically in the very middle of the Bible. Nine chapters of erotic love poetry that certain parts of the Jewish community don't let you read if you're a man until you turn 30 because they think you'll get too hot and bothered. Now, eroticism is very different from different cultures. So what we call eroticism in our culture, most, most cultures just think, really? Do you have to be that crass? I mean, do you have to see everything throbbing and pulsing and all that sort of stuff? You can't just allude to it? Um, you, you do need quite so much biology? Yes, we do. But... Um, that's not how it works. So here in the middle of it is this chapter. Look at, look at verse 1. Song of Songs. That is called the Song of Songs, saying, this is the best of songs, about the best of subjects. Right? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Gosh, that's a shocker for a killjoy, isn't it? Right? Sex is great, and it's so good, it's even better than wine. Gee. There it goes. But this is, this is a frank, beautiful sensual celebration of the sexual desire and love and fulfilment between a bride and a husband. That's what it is. And Tremp Longman, a great scholar in this book, has said this. One of the interesting things to note is the dominant voice of the woman. Um, This is not the usual sexist nonsense that women talk too much because actually all the studies show that in any social thing men speak much more than women do. Um, It's not that sort of nonsense. But it's saying that here is this thing of this pursuit and this longing, this sexual enjoyment and, and seeking of pleasure in each other's company. And the woman is not some passive, you know, invaded by the thrusting sexuality of the male, which, which is kind of Freudian if you talk about it like, like that. The woman is, she is as thirsty for sexual contact as the man. 
She is initiating, she is pursuing him, she loves it, and so she should. And the man does as well. So you've got this wonderful description. The the woman, you'll have to read this for homework. Um, In chapter 5, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. She describes his head, his hair, his eyes, his arms, his lips, his legs. Uh, Verse 14 um, is much more sensual than the English translators will normally do it. I won't tell you about it unless you want to ask. Uh, his legs and pillars, his mouth is sweetness itself. This is my beloved. She loves the way he looks. I mean, I don't get this with women, but they find some male bodies exciting. I can admire them from a distance in a clinical way, but she finds this quite wonderful. Um, he then twice, interestingly, twice in the Song of Solomon, he describes her looks. It may be something to do with the what they say is the um, uh, men's greater concern with the visual than women. That's not saying one is and one isn't. But it's just interesting that she, he twice describes her. I used to love doing this, not because I'm a dirty old man, but just it was helpful, I think, for the boys when I worked at a boys' school for nine years. Uh, with the oldest year we had with them, we would look at the Song of Solomon, partly to dispel some of the nonsense they had about the Bible and sex. You get to this verse here, verse 6 in chapter 7 of the Song of Solomon, about three centimetres from the bottom of the page. He says in verse 6, How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with all your delights. Now, get this, it used to take the boys about 60 seconds to work out what was being said here. Then they'd go, oh, no. He says to her, your stature is like that of the palm tree. You know the palm tree? Long, slender, um, bushes and fruit up the top. Your stature is like the palm tree. Your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. And they'd go, oh, Really? And then almost without exception, one of the boys would say, that's not in the Bible, is it? Because they know it's in the Bible. Right? They know that the Bible is anti-sex. So it can't be in the Bible. The, interesting, the only other book where they would say this and would say it with some regularity was the book of Ecclesiastes. These two parts of the wisdom literature about how life works from God's point of view. This was one. So the Bible, what's saying, the Song of Solomon... This nonsense that sex is just about procreation in the Bible, it's just utter rubbish. It may be that we've been heard to say that because since the 60s, perhaps since the the, the magic invention of the birth control pill, society does need to be reminded that there is some connection between sex and having kids. Um, So maybe because we keep saying that as an addition, I just think it's because people like sending us up, frankly. Um, I've never heard any talk in my 35-something years hanging around churches that got close to suggesting that the only purpose of sex was procreation. It's nonsense. And this book says it's nonsense. Other people. Now, I want to share something with you, adult to adult, and I think we can do this thanks to Freud. We need to talk frankly about sex. So let's talk frankly. Uh, if you believe in God, or if you're looking at Christian belief, this is what Christians believe. We believe God made us. We, it's you know, Genesis 1. God created. We're his idea. There's lots of the parts of the human body that, are, that experience pleasure. Now, for the man, it's focused on the penis. But the penis is a multi... It, it does a number of things, as you know. But women have a part of the body called the clitoris. And in all my reading in this area, the indication of the scientists is that the only purpose of the clitoris is for the experience of intense sexual pleasure. That is the only purpose it seems to have. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if sometime down the road they discovered other things. That's what the body's like. It's often much more complicated than we think. But that's all we know so far. Now, that being true, 
What does that tell you about God? If you believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth. What does it tell you about God's view on pleasure? It does remind you, doesn't it, of C.S. Lewis, after he went from being an atheist to being Christian, wrote a magnificent book called The Screwtape Letters, which pretend to be a senior devil writing to a junior devil. And one of the things that the senior devil calls God is that dreadful hedonist, that God is so bourgeois that he puts pleasure all around the place in human life. God is a... That is, he, he creates us finely tuned for pleasure. And this is what it is to know God and to walk in his way. I think Freud would be pleased that we talked about that. Well, let, before we have some time for questions, let's go to 1 Corinthians 7. The, the chapter's not there at the bottom of that page. Now, friends, I, this is... Um, in the name of and Rokina, and they suggest, and I think it's right, that the things in these verses were unheard of. This is the first time ever we've got in human writings some of the statements here. We'll take them for granted. In fact, some of us might find some of the statements in this verse irritating because of our worldview, that is, everything is about the individual. I'm a rugged individual. It's all about me. So let's, let's listen to what it says. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, likewise the wife to her husband. So it actually speaks about our sexual responsiveness in terms of duty, right? If you are a husband, you have a sexual duty to your wife. Uh, she has a sexual duty to you, but it seems to me the way the Bible speaks, is it is never the job of the husband to speak to the wife about her duty. It is always his job to speak to himself about his duty, and she speaks to herself about her duty. It's always a sinful misuse of the Bible to use the Bible to whack someone over the head with their duty. Shut up and apply it to yourself. That's what you do with the Bible. The next verse, verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Now, the ancient world was, they all agreed with that. Right? The wife belongs to the bloke. Every culture knows that. This is the part that's wonderfully revolutionary. We can miss it. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. If any of you are husbands or think about becoming husbands... You are a happily enslaved person. You are the sex slave of your wife. It does not matter how tired you are, how busy your schedule. Um, if she wants to have sex in whatever way she hints at that or goes quite overtly, if she's like the woman in the Song of Solomon, right? you are her sex You owe it to her. And the way it works with sex often is you might start reluctantly, but most people get into it once they've got into it. This is a detailed study I've done. Uh, so you might feel like making an excuse or avoid going to bed or whatever you do to avoid intimacy. But that's actually sinful if you're a Christian person. You owe it to your husband or your wife. Not just the wife to the husband, but the Bible's equally fair on the husband to the wife. Now, the problem, one of the problems, I think, when, when people look at Christianity from the outside is they, they think... Maybe there'll be a few little ethical things we can pick up here that might be helpful. That's not how it works. Christianity works on a whole other way of living. That the whole of life is not about getting but giving. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That the secret of life is not getting other people to meet your needs, but the secret of life is learning to meet other people's needs. It's, it's the same way with sex as it is with money and every other area of life. Now, um, some of you have heard of this lady, um, Dr. Wirakun. Um, I... You know, I, you know, I'm careful to quote her since she's here, I see, or her double is here. 
Um, but, you know, one of the things that uh, I have learned by listening to some of her lectures, and I learned some of this watching a program on Catalyst on the ABC about two years ago, is that what we have now, thanks to the ongoing work of, of uh, science, is a knowledge... There used to be this joke that the most important sex organ is not between your legs, but between your ears. Now, we know that to be true in a way that we didn't know it even 20 years ago. In terms of the enormous impact of hormones and chemicals that get released when you fall in love, get released when you hug, get released when you have sexual intercourse. Um, endorphins, etc., apparently released when you spend some time hugging and kissing. Some people go running, they tell me, to get the endorphin. This sounds to me, to me like a much better way to do it. Um, it doesn't damage your knees and things like that. Um, when people have sexual intercourse, uh, serotonin is released, which is a, a helpful thing. Oxytocin, which I always want to call oxyacetylene, but they tell me that's not right. Oxytocin, which apparently is the... This is, I think it's true in both, but it's certainly true in the women. Lots of oxytocin is released, uh, which is the same hormone, the same chemical that's released in them when they breastfeed their babies. And it's a hormone of attachment. Uh, for men, it's things like vasopressin, and I think that also they have a bit of oxytocin going around. Vasopressin heightens your sense of protect, protectivity of those that you're with, and also it's an attachment hormone. Now, what does this tell us? When I became a Christian, and reluctantly, and just thought, okay, I'm, I've got to become a Christian because it's true and it's serious, I, I felt as if I was siding up with God against my sexuality and against having uh, you know, the fullest, freest, most wonderful sex life possible. But I, I thought I had to do it. And I understood that I could only have sex with the woman that I was married to and then only with that woman until we're parted by death. That's, that's, that was the rules. Do you know how much sense that made to me? Not one scrap. It, it just was stupid. But I understood God said it, so that's what I bought into. Now I think we can see why God does that. Uh, because in the end, um, the act of sexual intercourse is not just a way of which would be good to look at. It's a, it's a form of body language whereby you say things about your ultimate giving of yourself to someone that you shouldn't be saying. In fact, you're lying if you say that to someone with your body when you haven't given yourself to them in marriage. If you're not ready for marriage, you're not ready to have sex. But also, what happens in sex, it is like, it's like God's superglue that binds you together. And you may plan to have meaningless sex, but your body will be fighting you every step of the way. And in the end, God is quite clever. So God does not have a morbid and unnatural view of sex, far from it. In fact, if you want the maximum joy and safety and peace in sexuality, rather than learn to sing with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, learn to sing, I did it his way. Because he does love us and he does understand us and he does, as Jesus said, I came that you may have life, life in all its fullness. I'll stop there so there's some time for question or, you know, if, if there's any sexologists here, they might like to correct any of the data I've provided. Craig. Well, now it's your turn. If you'd like to ask a question or make a comment about something that Ian said, you can do that via the little slip of paper that you should have found inside your program. There are pens on your table. I'll give you a minute if you'd like to write something down. It's um, anonymous. You don't need to put your name to it. Jeffrey will wander around through the tables and collect those up. While you're doing that, let me tell you about a few things that are happening. There's the details of the next five-week crash course in Christianity that we run on Wednesday nights over in the St Andrews School Library starting early May. Up on our book table 
up the back. There's a number of books on the topic that we're looking at today which might be useful. The first one is called Pure Sex. It's by Philip Jensen, who's the dean of this cathedral, and a guy named Tony Payne. And they talk about the promises that that were made by the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s and how those those promises didn't deliver and the damage that, that has been caused by that. And so it's quite interesting as he traces the history of the sexual revolution, but he says it's a book for all who are curious, confused, dissatisfied, hurt or struggling with sexuality and who want some answers and once again presents the Bible's view about how to deal, particularly perhaps with some of the hurt and the damage that's been caused by it. Another book we have is called One Flesh by Dr Greg Clark and Dr Amelia Clark. Um, Amelia is actually a sex therapist. They've written this book for people who are engaged and about to get married or who are married already, and there's, there's lots of practical stuff in there about sex in marriage. And thirdly, we've got that, uh, the book on stories about Christ- Christians and homosexuality on the back table for, for $10 as well. Easter's coming up soon. We've got these Easter reading guide booklets for $2, The Week That Changed the World. They've got some fantastic testimonies from city workers and the, the Easter story from Luke's Gospel, a great thing to give away to to work colleagues as we approach Easter and there's also some free literature up the back that you're welcome to take as well. It looks like we've got a few questions. There's also a a new website for the City Woman events that are coming up for the rest of the year. There's four of those. Right. Two questions. Just want to keep an eye on the clock in the economy. In terms of husbands and wives giving themselves to one another sexually, is it reasonable to say that there are underlying times when it's okay to be tired and unwell, etc., so long as it's not used as an excuse regularly? Yes, absolutely. Obviously, what I was... I'm sorry, what I was doing was perhaps overstating the case um, so that it was clear... But, you know, if, if you've just been food poisoned, you know, and a hunch is that most couples are at least a little bit sensitive to each other on these things. But I, I just think, in the, you know, there's really sad studies um, from France about how women who've got a couple of kids would much rather have an hour's extra sleep than they would have sex with their husbands. And I think, man, if the French are saying that, pity help the rest of us. But, um, yeah, I think there are times, uh, of course, when, when um, there'll, there'll be some discussion. Um, and, yeah, but I think the general, the general understanding of the husband is to be, as, as the wife is to be, my body belongs to my partner. So if my hunch is that they want a hug or they'd like to make love or something else, I'm there for them. Uh, that's, I think, that's it's the mindset I think that the Bible is talking about, uh, rather than that they're there for me or whatever. The Bible mentions that being married or being single are both good. Yes. In fact, if you're single, you're doing better. Well, maybe. Uh, as you can devote to God more for the singles. For the singles, are they then missing out on God's gift of sex? Please comment. Well, a 
couple of things. The first is, I've been single for the last four years. Um, my wife left me four years ago, and you're probably thinking she did well to last as long as she did, and I think she did. But um, So I've been single for the last four years, and uh, have I ceased to be sexual? No. Have I? I mean, my relationships with men and women are different. I enjoy the sexuality of general life. I don't think I'm particularly obsessed with this, but I just think there is a certain... I, I realised some time ago that I was you know, trying to work some stuff out and I thought I was going to go and see a friend, a minister. Some of them are worth being friends with, not many, but some. And I was going to see, but then I thought, no, I really want to see Cathy. Cathy's his wife. Now, Cathy's an old friend. I've known her since I was 17. She's married to a friend. She's not really my sort of gal in there, but she's a fantastic gal. I just thought it was interesting. I realised what I wanted was female companionship. I've got quite a, few, quite a lot of close mates. But sometimes it's good just to talk with... And so I think that sexual difference plays itself out in all of our friendships. I think that's what the Bible is aware of that we're not allowed to be aware of. So you don't cease being sexual if you're single, even if... You live and die celibate and as a virgin, as, as friends of mine have and are doing. Um, is it better to be single? Well, if you're single, and I've discovered this in the last four years, you have much more free time to go and do whatever may need to be done for, in Christian ministry and work. If you're married, the Bible's very clear. If you're married, you better not live like a single person. Right? If you want to live like a single person, be single. If you're married, the Bible says you must look after your husband or your wife. So there's just less you can do in terms of events you can go and speak at. So I've got a friend who's in New Zealand who's had me speak there and a friend who's in Adelaide who have encouraged me to stay single. And I, I joke with them. It's a, there could be a little bit of self-interest there, isn't it? You know, because I can, come, I can go there more easily. Both, the Bible says, are good. Paul, as a single man, says he thinks it's great if everyone can be single, but he realises most people can't do it. There are real advantages. And so you look at the life of someone like John Stott, uh, John Chapman, Dick Lucas, a number of these people who've been real world changers as men, Mother Teresa and other women like her, Jackie Pullinger and people like that, real game changers in the world have also been single because they're just, they've got a freedom. Now, both sorts of experience will have pain in it. Being married's got its pain. In fact, I was chatting with a friend about the possibility of remarrying and he's, he's done that. And he said, well, then it all depends on what your pain tolerances are. He's thinking he's joking about the pains of being married. Okay, um, that's all it seems to me. He's married well. But um, there's pain and dissatisfaction and the grass green and stuff in every situation. Uh, what, what 1 Corinthians is saying is that both things can be good from God, can be lived with well, have got their difficulties. And uh, either which way, you're going to live life as a man or a woman. Next week, any other questions before we... Guys, we've got two minutes. Any questions from the floor? Any factual corrections you might like to make? Okay. Sorry to embarrass you. Oh, it's better if I'm watching you being embarrassed than me being embarrassed. But um, anything else? Okay, next week we'll look at what Jesus does and doesn't say about divorce and remarriage. Okay. Thank you. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.